Ash Olaf. Hi guys, welcome back to the film series from the Symposium. Delighted again to be joined by Jay, James and Gaurav. Um, today we're engaging with the broad question of what actually is a film. We'll start with um, things that you would immediately assume to be a film, but perhaps there are certain aspects of, of them which indicate that they're not. Um, and then we'll do the converse. We'll, do, uh, we'll look at things which are maybe... Um, at first glance, not a film, not a part of cinema, but then there are strong arguments that maybe they should be considered part of cinema. Um, so on the on the uh, first section, Jay recently saw Hamilton on Disney Plus, the recording of the play. Um, so yeah, Jay, if you'd just like to start and talk to us about it. Uh, hi, so for those of you who haven't heard of it, Hamilton is it's a Broadway musical. It's been in New York for probably about five years now. And on Disney Plus, you can catch a recording of the original cast performing the, performing the show. So it's filmed over a period of three days. It's two uh, audience productions, as well as one production without the audience, with the use of kind of more cinematic techniques, such as Steadicam, to kind of capture some of the more intricacies of the routines. Um, I think what's interesting is I first heard that they were making a film of Hamilton in about 2017, 20, which is actually after they filmed this. Um, and obviously my initial expectation would be that they were going to do this, you know, with huge sets and huge production values. But actually what they did was they just released a filmed version of the play. And I think this kind of got me thinking, because while I was th watching the film, I actually thought, well, and I noticed I have said the word film. While I was watching this, I was thinking, wow, this is actually a really effective way to get across a musical into a film version. Because I think when you see that it's on a stage and you see them performing in front of a stage, it almost feels kind of slightly less cringy and you don't feel like they're just random people bursting into a song when they're trying to immerse you into kind of this environmental realness, which is what a lot of kind of film musicals try and do. Is that is that your kind of own dislike of film musicals generally, perhaps clouding your clouding your opinion, just just as a devil's advocate, just because a lot of a lot of people like those aspects of film musicals? Yeah, but I do think to an extent there's I think it's requires kind of a greater sense of kind of suspension of belief when you've got because I think you know a large part of this construction of these huge epic sets is to create convey a sense of realism and then it kind of gets broken down the second someone starts you know going into song and singing um and I think what Hamilton did, did here was you know you can see that these people are in a theatre and you kind of accept it as these are the rules of the world of the theatre rather than a film which kind of rules runs on the world kind of the rules of the real world if it's trying to look like the real world if that makes sense um so i thought it was you know an interesting approach even if it was maybe just you know an attempt by disney to get this marketed to a broader audience um so i thought it was an interesting way of showing you know the musical as a film so jay then do you think that says something interesting about um the difference between stage and film as perhaps one of the conflicts that we'll talk about yeah i do think there is a difference in the sense that i think you know i, I i've seen a lot of adaptations of you know shows and a lot of the time i don't necessarily think it works too well and i think part of you know what's good about hamilton is the production values i don't know if any of you actually watched it but the production values of the show are quite impressive there's this huge rotating stage and all of that. And I think 
for me, part of the part of my enjoyment of the show it wasn't so much the narrative. I thought you know the narrative was maybe lacking a little bit, but I enjoyed kind of you know appreciating the performance of these people on a stage performing live, doing everything kind of you know in one go as it were. And I think that's something you get to appreciate when you go to a theatre. There's this kind of connection that you've got to this you know to the actors and to the show because you're experiencing it unfold in real time. Mm. And I thought that to an extent, it actually managed to do it quite well when you're watching it on your TV. There's still this element of, although obviously it's not one take, they're cut, but it kind of feels like you're watching something that happens in one take. Yeah. And you kind of get that awe of, wow, these actors are incredible, that I don't know if you'd necessarily get when watching a film when they've had the chance to do this many, many times and, you know, pick the best, you know, pick the best shot. Yeah. No, no, I, I think that's interesting. Um, James, what are your thoughts on how recorded plays fit into film or just the relationship between stage and film? Because um, if you take a studio in a traditional film studio um, as a stage, the only real difference, it seems to me, is the production quality between a recorded play and a film and the existence of an audience. I mean, is it that fine? Is that is that fine a distinction? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is a thing called theatricality, right? So there is a level to which um, anything be it a film, piece of art, you know, can be theatrical. I mean, even a, a play can, can be not theatrical. Um, to me, when people started talking about this Hamilton thing, as if, you know, it's, is it a film, is it not? I thought it was a bit of a meme. Like, I thought it was a bit, you know, I didn't think that there was actually going to be a serious divergence. Um, but one of my friends uh, put up a poll. Most of the people that follow him are film students because he, he went to film school. And it was overwhelmingly... Uh, the case that they voted that this Hamilton was not uh, a film, which I thought was kind of strange. So mm. I, I thought about it and I thought about what is literally, what is the actual difference, if there is a difference between, um, you know, a film stage production and a film. And then I thought about uh, this film called Dog Filth by Lars von Trier, which is filmed on a soundstage, made to look like a soundstage. Um, and, the, you know, the whole production design of the film is supposed to look excessively theatrical. So the only difference between Dogville and Hamilton, if there is a difference, is that Hamilton is usually seen in person, you know, with actual people on the stage. And Dogville was never seen like that. It was only ever filmed. There was never an audience. And I don't really think the presence of an audience is really, you know, uh, a good way to differentiate between whether something is a film and something is theater. As far as I'm concerned, if it's a filmed piece of narrative entertainment, it cannot be not a film. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you're getting into um, you're getting into muddy waters with the use of the word narrative there, which I'm sure we'll engage with I, later I, on. Well, actually, I don't think I am though, because I had I had to think before this podcast. Right. Name me one non-narrative film. Name me one. Just a mm. single one. Doesn't exist. Samsara. <laughs> <laughs> no. First of all, I knew you were going to say Samsara, Jay. I knew you were going to say Samsara, <laughs> so I prepared a fucking response. <laughs> No, uh, first of all, yeah, I mean, I, I get the Samsara Baraka thing, but Samsara clearly has some sort of narrative about human progress, about how we've lost our roots and we've moved away That's towards a very sort loose of narrative. mechanized. It's not, it's literally the whole point of the movie. It's a documentary. All documentaries have narratives, they all have points to make. You know, a political message is still a narrative. No, so, so, for example, you've um, talked about The Clock, which is a kind of 24 hour film, which is kind of straddling. Ga a gallery a museum gallery versus cinema so if, is this is just merely a succession photos of a succession of paintings which are not even loosely connected 
So that, that, that would therefore be not a film. But if the paintings of any kind of, although that's subjective, narrative connectivity, then it well, becomes a film. The clock can easily, I mean, the, what the clock is, is it is clips from other films. It's, it's a remarkable achievement. It's 24 hours long. And it's clips from um, a number of, of films, like hundreds of films, maybe thousands of films, right? And it tells the time. That's what the, it does. It tells the time. So it's a shot. It's shots of clocks of people talking about times, etc., from other films. And whilst you're watching it, it's like the time in real time. I mean, what's the most you know the most basic narrative of all time, right? Is one one to two to three. Yeah. Um, so I think I think we can easily easily subsume that there. Um, my my feelings with the the the, the clock is more that there is sort of thought to be a dividing line between um, pieces of audiovisual work that you should show in a gallery and pieces of audiovisual work that you should show in a cinema. Although there are um, filmmakers which straddle that line. I mean, in particular, Simon Liang, who's had some you know reasonably big films that a lot of film fans know about. He also releases most of his films, at least now, in a gallery setting instead of uh, in a cinema setting. Mm. Um, but it's a whole other question about whether that line demarcates the difference between fine art and film or whether, you know, you can just say that films which are fine art are films. Well, I mean, if, then if it's the method of consumption, which is the issue, i.e. gallery versus TV or, or cinema screen, then surely the film students you mentioned earlier, surely their objection, objection to Hamilton maybe has some basis? No, but it's it's not about the medium. It's about um, why you would choose that medium. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. that they are showing the because you can show a movie in a gallery and it doesn't change things, right? I mean, the yeah. first time I saw um, this this Simon Ming Liang film, uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn, was in a gallery. It doesn't mean that it's not a film. It's more that what in the film would compel it to be shown in a gallery instead of in a cinema. Is there something yeah. about that film which makes it intrinsically different? Mm. Um, to which I would say probably not. All right. I mean, uh, Gaurav, what are your thoughts, um, especially considering the difference between theatre and film? Because um, at school, I know you you did as well. We we both watched kind of Shakespeare adaptions, which were yeah. obviously plays, but then they were filmed in a... They weren't recordings of stage in the Hamilton sense. They were well, like mostly, plays that had been yeah. put to film. They were in film yeah. studios with special effects, etc. Yeah. Um. I, even on top of that, I remember... I watched in the cinema the Royal Shakespeare Company production of Macbeth. Right, and, and that was just a recording of the that stage. That was like... essentially just a recording of the stage. Right. They had multiple camera angles and, you know, a bit of mm. close-ups on who was speaking at various points. But it was, uh, I haven't seen Hamilton, but I've seen a couple, you know, scenes and parts of it. And it's it's nowhere near the level that Hamilton went to, right. towards, you know, making it look a lot more film-like with its production value right. but i i do agree with a lot of james said that really at the end of the day if it's if, if it's you know a sequential narrative of of pictures in a row then at the end of the day it is basically a film I and if you want to record it as well you know yeah record it and if yeah. you if you want to say i, I think because a, a lot of modern film a lot of modern cinema is based on the fact that you know this is a pr produced released piece of material which will go into a cinema people will pay to see it it will generate some kind of money and then it will be you know it will be released on dvd and that that's what people count as a film but but really it could be it doesn't have to go to the cinema it could be released anywhere in any kind of form as, as long as it's as long as it's filmed in some way with a camera it in my opinion it counts as a film mm. No, I think I think on on those issues I, I would agree just in the sense that as I raised earlier that 
the distinction of an audience being present and not, as James also echoed, is, yes. is a bit of an arbitrary one. I mean, Jay, what, no, what would you like to say on Jay? On the audience point. Or just generally about the relationship between stage and film. Well, I mean, you mentioned Shakespeare. Actually, a couple of months ago, I watched um, Fleabag. They did, um, they released a filmed version of the play. I think it was from the Edinburgh Fringe. I might be completely wrong. No, no, it was. And then she also performed it in London and now she's yeah. done it in New York as well. But, but, but yeah, essentially the TV series of yeah. the play. But I can't, I could, the play of the TV series, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've got to say, it's kind of echoing what Gaurav said. If you compare the way Fleabag was filmed, I, mean, I didn't think of it at the time. I didn't watch this and think I'm watching a film. I just thought I'm watching a filmed play. But when you watch something like Hamilton, they go into a lot of effort to kind of make it you know, very as cinematic as physically possible. Um, it doesn't necessarily always work, but there's a lot of kind of inherently cinematic techniques involved in here. There are scenes where you've got a tracking camera following characters around the stage. Um, you've got, you know, seat cuts from behind the stage, in front of the stage, everything. Whereas Fleabag, it was kind of more or less a static camera for the whole show. But I mean, I would probably have to concede as well and say that Fleabag, for better or worse, probably is also qualifying on the line of a film because... You know, I think it might be this arbitrary distinction between, yeah, I, I'd probably echo the overwhelming agreement that if it's a filmed production, it probably is, for all intents and purposes, a film, especially if it's meant to be consumed on a TV, at home, you know, in the same kind of way that we would watch a film. Okay, um, James, I'd like to take what Jay said and then bring it to the idea that if then, if it's a recorded sequential narrative piece, that it becomes a film... What is the distinction between the TV screen and the cinema screen then? What is the distinction between a TV show and a film? Is there a distinction? Should they be separated? Is it the fact that one of them is split up? Is it that you can watch one of them um, in one sitting? Is it that there are different lengths? So what are your thoughts on the difference between film and TV? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I think this is a much harder one than the, than the Hamilton one. Um, and I think... Jay and I, I think, are in, in rough agreement about people's motivations regarding uh, how we talk about TV series in relation to films. So the prime example, I guess, of, of the TV series, which people love to say is a film, is Twin Peaks The Return. And <laughs> there are a variety of reasons why people actually want to say it's a TV series. And I think they have little really to do with, you know, the idea of what is a film and what is a TV series. Um, people who are into film or, you know, the film community have a sort of sense of superiority about the art form. Like film is, you know, it's the best art form, right? So TV is seen as inferior. So when something that Twin Peaks The Return comes up around, which is, you know, just monumentally excellent, there are two reasons why they want to say it's a film. The first is that they don't want to concede something as good as Twin Peaks The Return to TV instead right. of the film. And the second is that they want to take Twin Peaks to return and elevate it to the status of film, right? So one is they want uh, themselves to be benefited and the other is they want the material to be benefited. That said, um, I think around the time, that time in 2017, a lot of interesting arguments were mooted uh, to do with where we could draw the line. Um, and that line was mainly drawn between people, you know, we were saying that TV series have episodic structures. So, you know, you have 10 episodes and in each episode you catch up with each of the characters and there's uh, sort of um, a pattern that emerges. 
uh, it adheres to very TV-like structures as well with, you know, overarching story plots disappearing and appearing. Mm. And the thing with Twin Peaks The Return was that it didn't do that at all. There was no structure whatsoever. Characters would just disappear and, you know, reappear and vanish. And the whole thing, if you watched it altogether as, you know, it just completely in 18 hours, you wouldn't be able to detect any sort of rhythm or any sort of repetition or any episodic structure at all. And I think a good uh, comparison point was, I believe it came out, last year yeah nick reffin's tool to die young on amazon where the lengths of episodes vary wildly i mean some are over two hours and some are under half an hour mm. um which just seems like he's made 18 hours of content and they've just arbitrarily split it up into consumable chunks right um so i guess those are, that's more a list of issues than an answer um but but for me i mean i'm happy personally to call some you know there are long, you know, there are films that are longer than Twin Peaks: The Return. You know, even at eighteen hours, um, I'm happy to call something which has no struck, you know, no oh, no structure. That's a that's a heavy term, but no episodic structure. Mm. Um, I'm happy to say that's you know that's a film if it doesn't obey the constraints of the TV uh, TV dramas. All the same, I don't necessarily think it matters too much. I think it's an arbitrary distinction. No, I think I agree on the last point about it being arbitrary. Um, I don't want to come back to Fleabag too frequently, but it for me, it's an example of something that's shows the distinction because each episode is less than 20 minutes and there are, I think, six episodes per season from memory anyway and that 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 means it's short that means it's you know shorter than three hours it's it's shorter than like a very consumable film like lord of the rings or it's it's far shorter than most bollywood films um and it it, like for example um although it, it has some degree of episodic structure in the sense that you're talking about james um it is quite cohesive and and you are able to watch it in a single watch and and not feel like it's been split up unduly i mean jay what are your thoughts on on this tv film distinction more broadly then and and even flea even engage with fleabag and twin twin peaks should you desire yeah it's an interesting one the tv film distinction because it's one of the things that i don't think it's i don't actually think it's physically possible to even attempt to kind of come up with a definition of the distinction because as we've kind of said, there are so many grey areas. Um, I can kind of, I mean, I've always heard this whole thing about Twin Peaks The Return being viewed as an 18-hour film. David Lynch said it himself. Um, I don't know if I entirely disagree, disagree with this whole episodic structure, or do I think that that's necessarily, you know, the point of distinction. Um, so for, just to give another example and throw one in here, there's um, Scenes from a Marriage by Ingmar Bergman. This is from the 70s. So it's a film. It's the original film's about three hours. Yeah. But there's also the extended version, which is also known as the TV version, which is six episodes, each episode being about 45 minutes each. Right. I watched the extended version, but at no point did I watch it thinking, you know, I'm just watching a TV show. I thought I'm watching, you know, just an extended film. Um, and it sounds silly, but I kind of had this different mentality of approach when watching it. I wasn't thinking I'm watching a TV show, I'm watching a film. You know, this is Scenes from Marriage, it's just the extended cut, and it just so happens to be split over, you know, a couple of viewings. Because I think, I mean, I think there are enough films out there where we kind of are quite happy, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's three films, most people would talk about it as if it's one whole film that we struggle together over as a nine-hour, you know, a cohesive nine-hour work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's kind of it's hard to do this without being arbitrary but 
I do think that there are there are certainly cases for certain things where you could probably make the argument that it is effectively a film. I think or maybe Fleabag slightly harder because actually no, I don't even think Fleabag is harder. I mean, realistically, the only point I've got for the only thing difference between Fleabag and Twin Peaks, for example, is that Fleabag won a, won a bunch of Emmys, and I don't think Twin Peaks won any. Right. You know, and I guess maybe that is it almost reaches the point where this categorization might just be, you know, does it qualify for an Emmy or does it qualify for an Oscar? Um, and I think, just to add, kind of add one more point, I think one other thing is, I certainly used to say this years ago, but if I was criticising a film, one point I would often make was, oh, it kind of feels like a TV movie, as if to kind of denote, you know, that it was a lower quality. Mm, that's linked to what James said about the prestige yeah. in the cinema community. But I think almost now, I think most people would agree that there's not even much of a blowing line in terms of quality. I mean, if you, uh, yeah, even, definitely. Yeah, if you watch something like, you know, The Sopranos, Mad Men, these are very high quality shows with excellent yeah. production values, better than you know certain films out there today. I mean, I, I think you'd be hard hard pressed to find someone who thought you know. The, the room was a higher quality work than Sopranos simply because one was a film and one was TV. Yeah. Yeah, but if you no. take the average, the average aggregate of quality yeah, of, of mainstream cinema and mainstream television, because prestige TV is like a drop in the ocean, there yeah. is such a thing as well, a TV movie and it looks like shit. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but I think, sorry, if I could just make one more final point. I think one I kind of came across this the other day was the, they were saying like how stuff like Netflix, because it's kind of changing the way we consume TV, where we've now got these kind of premium tv services where you pay for a description sorry for a subscription they're kind of less reliant on on adverts and you know yeah. there was kind of this argument that a lot of the kind of drivel you see on stuff like itv is just there basically to keep people's asses on seats so they can watch adverts yeah that's where the money came from mm-hmm. now that kind of the incentive is high quality shows which will bring people to come and watch it and i think you know as we've kind of moving into the kind of streaming era away from network television i think this idea of you know film be denoting a superior quality is kind of almost a dated concept at this point yeah i mean um i'd like to bring gorav in next but i'm just i'd just like to just say i mean james it's interesting you say it's a drop in the ocean just because um i think since about the time of the wire and then game of thrones it's been quite we have an increasing number every year of high quality, you know, very expensive TV shows, regardless of their quality, you know, their frequency is increasing. And I think Jay is right to point to streaming services as, as, as a potential cause. Yeah, but um, I mean, the, this is, you only watch, right, TV series that are good or, or, or acclaimed, yeah, right? I mean, yeah, TV, yeah, yeah. the TV runs all day, every day. No, Netflix is filled with the most unimaginable shit you have ever yes, seen in your entire life. I trash. I agree. Yeah. I mean, but, Gaurav, Gaurav, come in. I mean, I um, I I think there is most definitely a distinction between a movie and a film and a TV show and a film. Sorry, yeah. and I think the distinction isn't the spiritual definition and the feeling that you guys have been discussing. But as Jay pretty much hit the nail on the head, it's a very distinct commercial difference between the two. That a TV show is split into an episodic fashion, not necessarily narratively episodic, but it's split into different segments that are displayed in a collective seasonal grouping and they're displayed on a tv channel which is then interspersed with adverts and that's how they make money versus a film which is then released and you see watching a one sitting and you pay a ticket to watch it and that's how they make money and there is most definitely the distinction between the two in that commercial aspect and as as jay said that that has 
that has divulged the two kind of, if you want to call them art forms, into two different ways because the TV show's incentive is not instead to just make something really good, but it's just to keep you in the seat for as long as possible, watching as long as possible so you can watch those two, three-minute ad breaks every 15 minutes, whereas a film, you, you could argue that the, the incentive of a film is to make a higher quality, most appealing film as possible to get as many people to buy a ticket to watch it as possible. And and Jay, Jay's really right when he says streaming platforms are, are changing that because the incentive is now less and less becoming advertising reliant and more on a subscription-based platform, which is much closer to a ticketing system that films use. So now instead of producing something like Love Island, which is obviously, you know, it's just designed to have you sit there as long as possible to watch the adverts. Instead, it's now, do you want to pay this ticketing entry fee to Netflix to watch whatever, you know, supposedly high quality new TV show or film they've just produced? Like The Crown or whatever. The... Like The Crown or, yeah. or, or you know, The, the Dark, yeah. which is something big that's happening right now. Mm. Uh, you know, just whatever it is they're making, you know, when so, when they release so... a new film... Uh, so 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 will that change in model i.e the kind of ticketing system based on subscription to the streaming service do you think gorav that that will increase the quality of yes. a lot of tv shows right it, it will in the long run in in the short run right now it's well because the, then then you get into it the idea of how films actually make money and i i did say it has to be i did say it has to be good but i also said it has to be popular and as long mm. as it's mass appealing it makes money right there's tons of there's tons of trash movies that make tons of money because it's just it's just appealing. And Netflix is going to work exactly the same way, that there's going to be tons of shit on Netflix, which obviously no one likes and no one, no one cares about, and it's yeah. bad. But they, they bring people in, they bring people to pay the money, and therefore they get produced. And and that is that is going to be, by and large, the majority of the industry, the same, with, the same with film. It's going to be the majority of the industry. But then as a byproduct, is it, it, it does and will allow for better things to be produced of a you know of a higher caliber over time hmm. jay yeah i think just to kind of draw on this idea of keeping people in their seats for as long as possible um i think one thing i found kind of interesting when we talk about twin peaks the return i think this is kind of like the feature um tv work in this kind of debate but what's interesting about this is kind of david lynch in this show he goes like i actually go so far to say he's on like a one-man mission to pretty much piss off the audience as much as humanly possible like there's a lot of this kind of idea that tv shows you know they try and you know give you something nice where you consume from your house and they'll kind of give you something that you can keep coming back to every you know every hour or every week um kind of like you know the stereotypical of like a soap opera with like the cliffhanger at the end so you come back to watch the next like episode of drivel um and twin peaks is kind of different from that in the sense that there is no you could watch an episode and you'd have really, other than, you know, it being good, there's nothing that makes you think, oh my God, I need to know what happens next. Because frankly, for most episodes, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, even to the extent that where things happen that kind of fulfill audience expectations, it's almost taking the piss out of other TV shows for kind of spoon feeding and cuddling the audience. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of what's interesting is that this show, for me, does mark this statement that, you know, you can have a TV show that doesn't necessarily have to give everyone, you know, in, you know, it doesn't have to give its audience, you know, half an hour worth of light entertainment. They can come back to you comfortably week after week for, you know, for the next five years indefinitely. Twin yeah. Peaks kind of isn't designed to be that. It's designed to be a challenging work that just uses kind of the medium of film, of sorry, the medium of TV to give you a really long, hugely ambitious story. I've got some really interesting questions about what you just said. 
But before, James, could I just ask you how you reconcile your, well, no, uh, any, anyone really, because all of you mentioned it, how you reconcile your view of TV show as being essentially commercial with the aim of keeping people watching for the adverts with the idea of something like the BBC, which obviously is a non-commercial, it's, it's got the license fee. Does that make the BBC, you know, or, or um, what is it about the BBC then that, that, that allows it to produce shows when it doesn't yeah. have that same ad incentive? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I don't think this is a good way of distinguishing because I think time is money, right? Well, right. TV shows are doing exactly the same thing as, as films do, which is that you have a resource, yeah, and you have to expend that resource, whether that be time or money, and TV shows are trying to compete for your time, right? So the quality of TV shows, even if TV, you know, if TV shows are just trying to get you to watch the ads, it still isn't a reason why TV shows have shitty quality. Because the you know they have an incentive to make good quality material, such yeah. that you spend your time watching them. I mean, it's exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, like, like BBC. Yeah, because my central point is the reason why I don't like the ad and ticket distinction is that the BBC still produces, you know, Doctors and daytime TV, and and still produces EastEnders, and it doesn't have any adverts. Yeah, I mean, and Twin Peaks: The Return, right? Jay is just talking about that. First of all, I don't think Showtime has ads. Secondly, Showtime's a cable-based subscription model. So it's not like you just watch Showtime and you get given ads. You have to pay a shit ton of money a year to watch Showtime, mm. which is what Twin Peaks The Return was on. Uh, it wasn't on a conventional TV channel ever. Yeah, I, I was going to say, there's no way. If this was on ITV, it would have been cancelled within an episode. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's literally, it's designed to piss off the audience. I mean, Jay or Gore, have either of you, how do you respond to what, to what James and I have said about a challenge to your kind of advert-based distinction I mean, just because I... of the BBC, you know? No, I, I agree. I agree with a lot of what James said. At the end of the day, you are. It, it's just about making something to take people's time and take people's money. But then what Jay said about um, what show was it that he talked about? Something with the cliffhanger. Oh, just a normal soap opera. Soap opera. Yeah, I was think uh, that made me think of Killing Eve, the BBC TV show, which I watched season one of, and I really season one. Enjoyed. Season one was good. Season until right at the season end, two and three is uh... until right at the end when they had just the most bait boring cliffhanger to yeah, yeah, yeah. ever and as soon as yeah. i saw that i was like this is just you know this is just terrible it's just mm. ruined it's just ruined a pretty pretty damn good show up until that point mm. but um yeah i i do think i do think a lot of the incentives align between a tv show and a film to make something to get you to watch but i, I do think there is a slight distinction in that in that because of the episodic nature of, of a tv show that you, you you have to be incentivized to come back a lot more often than you would with a film. You have to be incentivized, essentially, per episode to come back, which is not something that happens with a film, because when you pay yeah. for a ticket to watch a film, you are, you've paid for that two-hour block, that three-hour block, and if you leave halfway through, no one gives a shit because you've already paid to watch it. Yeah. So they can put one and a half hours of boring stuff in it and only half an hour of good yeah. stuff. The TV show, you know, if that 20-minute episode of The Office is not getting you interested enough to watch the next 20 minute episode of the office then yeah it's failed as a medium and it doesn't you know it's lost money i think sorry i think one also interesting point is in terms of kind of you know the nature of the distinction is if you talk about like a film like the irishman if you say you know this is a four-hour film everyone's going to meme it and think who the fuck's going to watch that but if i then if then netflix went oh this is a four-part miniseries starring <laughs> al pacino and robert de niro yeah that's very true. everyone would go and watch it and it's like, that's so true yeah we do raise these points but i think to an extent the way they always brand these things 
changes the web someone's ability or desire to watch it to the extent where I'd almost think if I was making a really long film, I'd just call it a miniseries, and I knew that I'd get more people to watch it. That is, I, I didn't, I didn't realize just how true that is until I, no, re- I thought about it. How no, many that, more people would have watched that's... The Irishman if it was just four one hour or like four, <clears throat> like four 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 fifty minute episodes? It would have been so much more successful. Hmm. I mean, Jay, you mentioned earlier it, it kind of something that characterizes TV is the fact that they create content that makes people want to come and watch the same thing again indefinitely for a long period of time. This perhaps links to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, James has read the op-ed where Martin Scorsese <laughs> attracted, you know, attracted um, a lot of publicity for essentially saying that they're more, what, did he say they're more like theme parks? Theme park they're yeah, theme park. Theme park. yeah. Um, they're not real. So, films. yeah, so, I mean, that's then the film theme park distinction, is it? Although it has some parts of aspects of TV that, that Jay described. I mean, James, having read the op-ed, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to talk about this, right? I mean, I think we're, we're in a good position because we're a few months out of the fallout and there are more important things to care about in the world, <laughs> right? But this yeah. was like, I mean, this was like nuclear territory. You couldn't talk about this without being... The problem is that like Marvel fanboys are like, you know, infantile man-children and Scorsese fanboys are infantile man-children. And they're both like so trapped in their like really stupid limited worldviews. <laughs> and they're like so diametrically opposed, even though they're like, you know, crucially the same. It's like Doc and Bigfoot from Inherent Vice last week. They're like the same person. They just don't realize it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I read this op-ed because uh, the Scorsese camp really gets annoyed if you don't read the op-ed. If you talk about it and you go, oh, of course Marvel films are films, they go, did you read the op-ed? And you say no, and they're like, well, you don't understand the nuance. Um, so I wrote a little summary of the op-ed so that we can um, we can exactly. actually we can actually talk about it. Yeah, so what he said, uh, th- these are all direct quotes. He said that Marvel films are closer to theme parks than they are as movies. This is because cinema is about revelation, aesthetic, emotional, and spiritual revelation, and it's about characters. He talks about Hitchcock. He says Hitchcock was our, meaning his age groups, franchise. And in a way, certain Hitchcock films are also like theme parks, but it's not the thrills and the shocks that we go back to, it's the painful emotions, or he's talking about North by Northwest, the lostness of Cary Grant's character. He says that Marvel has no revelation no mystery and no genuine emotional danger. They are sequels in name, but remakes in spirit and everything in them is officially sanctioned. There is no risk and no individuality. And then he goes on and laments about how multiplex screens are too crowded with franchises and his film, The Irishman, you get the vested interest here. His film, The Irishman could only be made by Netflix, you know, and he says that people don't actually prefer Marvel films. If we showed them real cinema, i.e. his crappy Disney-esque film, The Irishman, then they would uh, they would be more into cinema. You know what I mean? I mean, my um, first my first reaction, sorry to interrupt you, is just that no, no, no. If, if Scorsese thinks, if Scorsese thinks all cinema is about revelation, I mean, he seems to assume that like 90% of the cinema industry, which is essentially just just regurgitation of the same premises and films that have come before doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, I was like, like where's just, the revelation yeah. in Scorsese no, no, cinematography? No, 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 not even, not even Scorsese. For decades and yeah, decades I mean, not even Scorsese thing. cinematography, which a lot of people would say is, is on the upper end of, of just what's released in the world. Just, just more objectively, that like what we see, like 90% of what we see is, is remakes and revelations. Yes. I mean, 
just as including we, Scorsese's own film The Departed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Departed. But I mean, what I mean, what I mean is that just as James said that you know, um, prestige TV is a drop in the ocean. I mean, those kind of Paul Thomas Anderson, as we spoke about Inherent Vice, those kind of films are also like a drop in the ocean yeah. out of what's released every year. I mean, I mean, Gorav. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did touch on that a little bit, which is it's very true. At the end of the day. If we're talking about the broad mainstream film, uh, cinema film industry. It's just about it's just to make money, right? That's all it is. It's to make well, I mean, money. It's regurgitation the same way that, the, yeah, that he's and the, and at the end of the day, you have to think about it as a as a risk reward investment. That if I spend ten million dollars to produce this film, how much guaranteed profit and return am I going to get? At the end of the day, yeah. they've worked out it's just safer to reboot things which have been past successful, to include sequels of successful original films, to just start a franchise like Marvel, which is basically every film is an advert for the next film, and it's just, yeah, you just consume yeah. a product and then consume the next product and the next one. You just, you know, you just go on an endless train. And that's that's pretty much all it is at the end of the day. Well, I mean, I just, what I don't like is that he seems to, that seems to be excluding, you know, just a, a huge chunk of the industry, which yeah. I know you might not like to watch them. You might not think they're high quality, but to say that they're not films at all just kind of puzzles me. I mean, Jay, you're not a fan of Marvel films. Where do you stand? No, I think what Scorsese said is stupid, to be honest. It's such an arbitrary, weird distinction to say yeah. that it's a theme park, because it's almost like saying if a film aims to entertain you, then suddenly it's not cinema. Yeah. I mean, it's or, stupid. Yeah. It's, or basing it's like, it off, like, subjective revelation, which is which how yeah. do you even measure it? Well, it's like Mad Max Fury Road. In my opinion, that's a far more entertaining film than anything Marvel's ever made. I'm going to call that cinema. It's a great film. I watched it in the cinema, actually, funny enough. It's, you know, got very good production quality. It's a film designed literally just relentless action scenes for the entire two hours. Yeah, um, so I don't get how Scorsese could reconcile the whole, you know, Marvel's not cinema because it just entertains you. I mean, you know, I think Scorsese, if I'm going to go, go into him completely, he made, he, made the Depart- <laughs> he made The Departed, which is a remake. It's a bad remake. The original film is much better. What is the original? No, talk, can you talk just briefly about that for those who don't know? The original just... film is Infernal Affairs. It's from Hong Kong. It's the production quality is much higher. It doesn't have the stupid lazy ending where it zones up on a rat to show you that the film is about rats. Right. Um, it's you know it's the plots and the plots kind of slightly thicker. The twists come at you a bit better. It's just it's a better film. It's a more interesting it film. Is, I mean, just on that point, Scorsese he did needlessly change pretty much all the good bits of internal affairs to make it worse like the the police rat character who's played by matt damon in the departed he doesn't have a character at all in and in and in internal affairs he is quite literally the main character crucial character in the film who has a pretty twisting engaging arc and and like Hmm. things happen to him which is just completely deleted and avoided and changed in in scorsese's films it is quite literally worse Jay, Jay, jay carry on on your uh you know, he's made Cape Fear, which is a remake. It's a, it's just a horror film. There's no revelation in there. It's literally just there to entertain you for two hours, unsuccessfully, but it does. It's attempting to entertain you for two hours. You know, I just he remakes his own films. Yeah, yeah literally. Just, the casino yeah, and got casino. Yeah, he does. Wall Street. What revelation is there in that? It's a three-hour comedy. No, I'd say that's a. I, I mean, I I actually it's think that's a very. I, I like think that's it. a good film. Yeah. Like but where's the revelation? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. exactly. It doesn't even fit his own kind of... It just, of to me, sounds like he's trying to, you know... It's almost like he's trying to promote his own film. It yeah, just he's, doesn't... he's pissed. He's pissed no... Irish, man. As in, as in if you don't know... It's kind yeah. of like, you know... Okay, so in school, I remember we did this discussion of what is literature. 
And our teacher was like, oh, you know, Twilight's not literature. Um, well, technically it's not. not literature. Technically it's not. It's genre. No, but you go, like, he was, they go through this whole, like, and they no, start doing a, these arbitrary... It's different, though. In, in writing, it's different because there's literary and there's genre, whereas you don't have that in film. Yeah, I guess. But you get what I mean, though. <laughs> it's kind of like you're trying to make these signals of arbitrary quality. classification on quality and nothing yeah. else, whereas in yeah. cinema, that just doesn't exist. The cinema is... You could say it's, there's great cinema and there's, you know, not so great cinema. I think I'd probably agree with him that Marvel's probably not the best cinema. I mean, just but, just on that entertaining point, just quickly, there's plenty, just also to refute Scorsese, there's plenty of very entertaining popular films, which I think most people would consider to be really good, like uh, Jurassic Park and Back to the Future, which are, you know, wildly successful films in their own right, which which are, you know, they, they just entertain, they just entertain the audience. That's all they do. They don't really have any <clears throat> grand revelations of any kind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's important to know that Scorsese really has like vested motivations for saying this because Paramount was supposed to make this movie, The Irishman, and they were supposed to make it for years. And then at a certain point, the actors got old and Scorsese made, I mean, probably the most stupid decision in like, um, you know, vaguely auto driven cinema of like I've ever heard is he really wanted the CGI the infamously shit CGI. He really wanted it, and it would—it was something like, don't quote me on this, it was like double or triple the budget of what Paramount had promised him. And Paramount told him to fuck off, because they don't want to double or triple the budget for CGI. So for that's only Netflix. Film. Yeah, only Netflix would pay for it. And he was really, really, really angry that only, Net, like, only Netflix would pay for it. And that's why he started saying this stuff. So he has a vested interest. It's not like he's just, you know coming well, at this from like um, altruistic you know motivations yeah. it's he's yeah. annoyed that netflix made his movie i mean interesting sorry Gore, but just interestingly um um i, I think that i thought i don't i would have thought that netflix were on the other side of the war from him in that he's someone who wants to treasure traditional cinema or netflix is perceived yeah. by many by many to be a threat to the traditional cinema goer the traditional um uh, ecosystem and model we have of releasing films i mean gorab what do you what do you want to say well i mean in, in that in that in that just that vein of, of questioning it's net, that that's slightly different on the issue that netflix just has billions and billions of money they want to throw around yeah when, yeah, yeah when so when when they see a director that wants to make a movie a well-known regarded director wants to make a movie and everyone said no netflix is just you know they're just jacking off in the corner excited to give them whatever budget it is they want to give them to do whatever it is they want to do because yeah. they're just after the press in that regard they don't really care if the movie is is good or not but then also on the paramount point scorsese films even his really good ones don't they don't make a lot of money at the box office. None of his films have ever really made a big return in, in, in other, compared to other, you know, prestigious directors, they haven't really made that much of a splash in the box office. So understandably, Paramount is Tom fuck off. Like, I'm not going to spend 300 million or whatever it is to make your four-hour-long CGI'd old people film. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, I just wanted to then cover in our kind of last topic, the issue of perhaps interactive interactivity or whether whether films can be interacted with you know issue of maybe games being films or specifically black mirror bandersnatch you know is that an example of a film james what are your thoughts on that distinction yeah i mean this is uh this is also i mean i think it's a really hard one because on one level i'm you know i'm happy to say that fmv uh games uh i'm not sure what that stands for but that's basically what you use to talk about something like black mirror bandersnatch yeah there's actually a, a whole industry for it out there it's just that obviously because bandersnatch was on netflix 
it was much more talked about. I'm happy, you know, I'm, I don't think it would be that controversial to say that's a film and that's, that's a game, but you start getting into really difficult territory when people start calling like game games, like mm -hmm. Death Stranding or Detroit Become Human or Heavy Rain. They start calling them films as well. Um, and I had a bit of a think about this. Um, I'm not sure on an exact defining line, but if I was to put one, I think it would have something to do with um, A, the level to which uh, attention is put into narrative over gameplay, B, the uh, attention to which um, sort of uh, narrative supersedes gameplay in that the gameplay perhaps isn't particularly challenging, uh, and C, the uh, attention to which, you know, um, is put into acting, and facial expressions and camera angles as well. Like for instance, if we look at um, Death Stranding, it's like got you know ten hours of cutscenes or something, uh, which in itself is a is a pretty blatant <laughs> sign. Um, but in those cutscenes, what's really really obvious is that so much attention has been put into camera angles and positioning and the movement of the camera. Um, and it's just you know when you're watch when you're watching it, it's just so obvious that this is trying to do something filmic as opposed to um, a much more uh, obvious kind of game. Um, but I, I wouldn't be comfortable in general with drawing a line that when something becomes interactive, it stops becoming a film. Mm. Um, Jay, you were quite, you played quite a lot, quite a few games when you were younger, especially kind of story-based, quite, quite expensive games like, you know, GTA or, or some of the COD games. I mean, what are your thoughts on the distinction between an interactive film and a film or a game and a film? Yeah, interesting. Actually, I've played Heavy Rain, which is the game, one of the film kind of games that James suggested. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting one to talk about because uh, going into kind of a bit more technical detail here, the, the controlling system in Heavy Rain is unlike any game I've ever played. It's the main controls are basically um basically the only controls you really have are to choose where you walk um every now and then there's some kind of fast action scene where you have to press along and basically control whether your character survives or dies mm. um also if your character dies they're dead for the entire film there are four characters they're sorry they're dead for the entire game there are four characters the base of the goal is to keep them all alive until the end mm. um it's pretty much it's unlike any other game there's no you can't go back if you mess up you can't go there's you know ep there's level or mission after mission or whatever you want to call it episode after episode where pretty much nothing happens it's just you walking around and interacting with the story environment and it probably takes about you know it took me about three days to play through the entire game um i mean i could definitely see an argument made i never thought of it as a film at the time i always thought i'm just playing a game with kind of cinematic qualities to it um I'd probably still go towards that side and say it probably is a game with cinematic qualities. I think it's just kind of, it was an attempt to show that gaming can be kind of, you know, a more artistic medium than people would necessarily say when you look at games kind of like COD, which are just, you know, it's just an action flick. Um, mm. I, but I don't necessarily think that makes it a film. Um, I think Bandersnatch probably is different because there's no controls or anything. It's just, every now and then you choose what happens you make these little choices and the choices you make affect what happens in the film often you have to go back if you made the wrong choice and do it again and watch parts again um because obviously you're not sitting there with your control like with a game controller in your hand and the control elements are very very basic even more so than heavy rain so i mean i'd say it probably flips more onto the film side of the equation 
than the game side, whereas I'd say heavy light, heavy rain, something like that, toys the line into the game side of the equation. Hmm. I mean, fair enough. Gaurav, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I, I agree with quite a lot of what was said, but I do think there is a distinction in the sense that quite, quite a lot of the games I've played, some of these filmic, like Heavy Rain I've played, I think Last of Us and the thing I would include in that category, these games, they do have a lot of cinematic quality and filmic quality, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, they're always, they're always still a game. And I think that's mainly because that when a film, when a, when a game sacrifices a lot of its elements to go more down that cinematic route, something like Death Stranding, you know, hiring only pretty well-known A-list actors to, to mo- mo-cap all their, mo-cap all their cutscenes. It, the game loses intrinsically what makes a game a game versus a film. The fact that you are playing it with your own hands. I think a perfect example is The Last of Us. I don't know if any of you guys have played that film. Yep. Played that game. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to spoil it just in case anyone mm. hasn't hasn't seen it. But basically. It's just a zombie survival zombie survival game. It doesn't take very long to play. It's about seven seven to ten hours or so. But it's it's a very cinematic experience, and it's a very involved storyline, and you, you get very involved with the characters and that kind of thing. And, and when I was playing it, I just kept thinking the whole time that this would be just so much better as an actual film than a game, because at the end of the day, the game mechanics in the game were just basic and, and kind of boring. You know, you just kind of stealth and you shoot and you kill a bunch of zombies and that's that's really it at the end of the day and the interesting part of the game is, is all in the characters and the and the actual cinematic part of the game so i think at that level games are always going to be restricted in that the more cinematic they go down that path the less the less the more part of the actual what makes a game a game is sacrificed and what makes a game good is sacrificed and in the bandersnatch side i think it, it does stand in a category of its own I think it would be unfair to call it a film in a traditional sense, but then you can't call it a game either. It is really its own interactive you know, media. It's its own interactive film media, interactive TV media, where you are tapping the screen at various points to, to follow along a timeline. Mm. I mean, James, could you tell people about Death Stranding? Because I've heard that's something that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean... I think obviously there, there are so many reasons why. So a lot of people who are there's, there's sorry I'm talking absolute shit. Um, there's sort of two sides of the the gaming community. Uh, there's like the ca- there's like the casuals like Game me, and there's the there's the there's the hardcore gamers, and the hardcore gamers hate the casuals because the casuals want to turn games into cinema. Okay, so. Yeah. Uh, and you were talking about The Last of Us. The Last of Us Part Two is even more, you know, quadruple yes. what you just said about The Last of Us, you know. Hmm. So Death Stranding is a game which a lot of the hardcore gamers didn't like because the gameplay sucks. Because uh, essentially what you do is you just walk around Iceland. It's America, <laughs> but it's Iceland for like 60 hours, right? And it's completely story driven. So there's like, like I said, there's like 10 hours of cutscenes. There might even be more. It might be 14 hours. Um, so... And it's it's very focused on visuals, on music, on acting, and on story. And it's almost zero percent focused on gameplay. I mean, it's almost impossible to die, right? So what it feels like to a lot of people is an interactive movie. And I know some sites, such as IndieWire, Dave Ehrlich reviewed it, which is the first time the site's ever reviewed a quote-unquote game, and he reviewed it as a movie. Um, so. I guess the question would be, and I don't necessarily think an answer has come out of our discussion so far, if there is a dividing line, where is the dividing line? And if I was to put the dividing line, it's probably to do with gameplay. If the gameplay is like 
the point, if the point is that, you know, it's like, say, look at Super Mario, right? The point is that you have to beat something and maybe that beating that something is a challenge, then that's when you start tipping over the line, I think. I mean, James, if I just may quickly ask then, because I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. If you take Death Stranding, I, I haven't played it personally, but I've, I've seen a lot about it and, and agree with a lot of what you said. If it wasn't a game and they just did the exact same thing, but actually as a film, do you think it would have been better? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's trying to aim at something. There's a particular, you know, a lot of people who play it say it's really hard to explain until you play it that like, if you just watch someone play it, it might look really boring. But when you play it, it's almost like meditative. It's a, it's a really interesting experience to play. It sort of puts you in the zone. It's like an experience kind of thing. Um, So if it was like a three hour film. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if it was a three hour film, it would be uh, probably not that interesting. I mean, it might be a little bit interesting. Mm. So it's it's almost, it's almost like a telltale game. It's it's like that kind of not really a telltale game is more like uh, Bandersnatch except animated. Right. Um, because it's an FMV game, right? Uh, the yeah. only difference between Bandersnatch and a telltale game is that you have to button mash during a telltale game in order to stop from dying. Mm. Right. No, Which is pretty I, much I, what happens in Heavy Rain. Yeah, right. pretty much Heavy Rain or Detroit Become Human. It's by the same studio. Yeah. Mm. No, okay. I think that's a really interesting distinction. I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we uh, covered there differences between film and stage, film and TV. Um, oddly, because of Martin Scorsese, film and theme parks, <laughs> and um, then film and when now finally whether a film can be interactive. So yeah, I think we've covered a lot of quality material. Just like to thank you all for coming on. Um, that, I found that really enjoyable, especially the Martin Scorsese section and uh, Jay's Jay's evisceration of his of his forty of his forty year career. <laughs> um yeah that that was that was that was good fun um but yeah thank you all and uh i hope you enjoyed that too just a quick reminder the where on spotify catch the link in our insta bio on um, the symposium podcast if you go to our spotify the links to our youtube and everything else are all there too um subscribe to us on youtube follow us on instagram and spotify and yeah have a great day and see you later on the film series from the symposium thanks Symposium with Ash Orlack.